You know, I so often use um, the expression perennial philosophy, and I choose to teach new thought through the lens of the perennial philosophy, and I also have a commitment to uh, share a deeper understanding of that. And to that end, I have invited back our old friend, uh, Brother Kusala Bhikshu, who some of you may remember from last year. He was here exactly a year ago, and he told me that um, this is the Buddha's birthday in May. Is the first full moon in May is Buddha's birthday? brother, that is correct, which was this week, so this is indeed most auspicious. And let's say good morning to the venerable uh, Kusala Bhikshu. It's good to be here. I guess I'm mic'd up so I don't have to stand behind the podium. Uh, the full moon day of May just happened a couple days ago, and that was the birth, enlightenment, and death of the Buddha, all on the same day, which makes it really convenient for us Buddhists to remember. <laughs> he was an important human because what he did in his lifetime is he became perfect as a human being. And perfection has many meanings, but the meaning of the perfect human, according to Buddhism, would be instead of having lust and greed, only having generosity. Instead of having hatred and anger, only having love and kindness. Instead of having delusion and ignorance, only having wisdom and insight. And he perfected himself realized this perfection at the age of 35 and taught for 45 years to anybody who was interested in becoming a better human being. In his first talk, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk, he said, I have discovered four truths. The first truth I have discovered is life sucks. It's really tough. <laughs> He said, because we're born, we're all going to get old, if we're lucky enough to live long enough. And because we're born, we're all going to get sick. And now most of us might have health insurance. And because we're born, we're all going to die. He didn't, he didn't pull any punches when he talked about this. He said, it's really a difficult proposition to be alive on Earth that there are millions of things every day that could kill us, and because of some karma or good fortune or luck, we don't die. And if we live long enough, we will die, and we're not quite sure how. So he said, the first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Not always, but ultimately. The second truth, he said, I have discovered why life for humans is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's because, of, it's because of a craving, an attachment, a thirst that can't be quenched. That we try to make things perfect in, and we're never able to do that because the world is different from how we think it is. That we try to hold on to the good and the good always ends and we try to push away the bad, and the bad doesn't ever seem to go away long enough. So we're frustrated. 
there's a certain amount of dis-ease and dissatisfaction with our life. Even if we're having a good moment or two in a day, it is sure to change. The third truth he said is, I have discovered the answer. And the answer is nirvana. The answer to our suffering, to our plight, is nirvana. It's the end of suffering while you're alive. It's the end of karma. And it's the end of all future rebirths. In Buddhism, we feel that we keep getting reborn because we have an attachment to life. And, and in our non-attachment, through nirvana, we are freed from the cycle of birth and death. Now, this is a, a tough sell because people, even though existence can be bad sometimes, is often good other times. And why would anybody not want to exist? What's the benefit of not existing? And the Buddha, I think, would have probably said, no, it's not about not existing. It's about existing, but not because of birth. It's existing because of nirvana. And nirvana is unborn and undying. And if you can figure out how to exist without being born, you'll never have to die. His fourth truth was the path. Now, this wasn't some theory that he came up with. This is what he actually came to understand through his own experience. And, and we call it the Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And those eight path factors allow us as a Buddhist to achieve, to realize our perfection in this lifetime. The, it can be broken down into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category of personal discipline, we find three of the path factors. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So when you become a Buddhist, there's an official ceremony you take and you accept five training precepts that will now guide you through life that will help you suffer less immediately, day one. The five training precepts are, I will train myself not to take life. I will train myself not to take what is not given. I will train myself not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will train myself not to speak unskillfully. And the hardest one of all, I will train myself not to get high. In practicing these five precepts, we look at them as practice, not commandments. It's our choice if we suffer more because we don't follow them. It's, it's our fault. If we suffer less because we do follow them and practice them, we look at our personal discipline as being the first step to liberation, the first step to freedom. Now you say, but what kind of freedom are you talking about? As a Buddhist, there's only one kind of freedom we ever talk about. It's the freedom from suffering. In right action, it's not to take life, one of the precepts. Not to take what is not given, one of the precepts. No sexual misconduct, one of the precepts. In right speech, we're talking about no false speech, 
malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip, or idle chatter. If you are fortunate enough to talk to a monk, the monk may not say much because he's practicing those. (laughs) 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 And that's okay, you know. The idea uh, of sexual misconduct is an interesting one because in America, in the world, we're really confused about what's right, what's wrong, and Buddhism was, was really specific. It said, you know, it's not good to have sex with people who are married, not good to have sex with people who are engaged, not good to have sex with children, not good to have sex with people against their will. That was pretty much it. But when it comes to being a Buddhist monk or nun, it's not to have sex. And is there anything wrong with having sex? According to Buddhism, no. But the problem with having sex for a Buddhist monk or nun would be the desire to have sex again and again and again. And that desire never seems to go away. And it's desire that causes the suffering. So you have to ask yourself, well, if I choose not to have sex, will that end my suffering? And I would say, no, you'll just suffer in a different way. (laughs) So you can see the foundation of Buddhism is based on morals and ethics. It's based on personal discipline. It's based on creating harmony in community, getting along with all the other humans in the world. It's a difficult task, but these five precepts help us stay focused. Then we get to meditation. Meditation is really what Buddhism is sort of known for. We're sitting around all day like frogs on a rock, quietly reflecting on the world around us. But that generally isn't the case. There's a lot of work to be done. Two kinds of meditation in Buddhism. One is called samatha meditation, tranquility meditation. One is called vipassana meditation, insight meditation. The idea is to find a place of peace and serenity inside. Unfortunately, it's only there while you're meditating. And then an insight meditation, the idea is to make it permanent. So we have three kinds of wisdom that arise with our samatha meditation. The first kind of wisdom that arises is is the wisdom of impermanence. Everything is always changing all the time. Nothing stays the same very long at all. And at first I thought to myself, that is really a bummer. It would be so nice if the good stuff would just stay there forever. But you know what? If there's no change, there's no life. Life is based on change. I'm watching Cosmos, that series, and it's just fascinating. And I like the Big Bang Theory, whether it's true or not. It's just so spectacular to see it animated. And it's just always changing all the time. And I thought to myself, what would happen if for one moment everything stopped changing? And it seemed to me everything would just go away. We need change to exist. So it's a good thing, but it's a frustrating thing. And so in meditating, what we start to see is that everything is in a constant state of change and flux. Don't get attached. You will suffer. The second thing we seem to understand at a very personal and deep level is that everything is ultimately unsatisfactory because of the change. And if it didn't change, 
I could actually live in a perfect way, but just when I get all the ducks in a row, everything changes and I have to start over again. And if I have one of those really cool meditation experiences where the world seems to open up and all the lights turn on, I can never achieve it again. Even if I run after it for 10, 20, 30 years, because everything only happens once. As I look at myself in the mirror this morning in particular, I thought, you know, I'm only happening this way once. How cool is that? And that, for some, is really a good thing. For others, they'd be disappointed. But I see all the different people I've been, all the different people I will be, because of this impermanence and change. And this leads, ultimately, to unsatisfactoriness. But now we come to the third aspect of Buddhist wisdom, which is nothing stands apart. Nothing is independent. We are not who we think we are. This is the toughest one of all to understand if you're a Buddhist because we like to think we are somebody. Ramdas used to talk about being in somebody training. The first half of our life is being in somebody training. The second half of our life is being in nobody training. And that seems to be what's happening in my life. I am now in nobody training. Who are you? I'm nobody. Okay. But I have to be somebody, if I'm pulled over for speeding, I have to be the guy in the license that I show the officer. Yes, that's me. Though I'm privately thinking, no, that was me, but not any longer. But I don't want to go there. <laughs> so this idea of never having to be anybody in particular gives us so much freedom. We can literally be anything or anyone we want. Because we're nobody, not somebody. Once a month, I get to go to Leisure World, Seal Beach, retirement community, 7,500 old people. I was a little hesitant at first. I'm thinking, what am I going to say to all the old people? And then I looked at them, and they all looked like me. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to have a lot to say. And we have wonderful discussions. And they are in nobody training. They've had careers. A lot of them have been somebody. Now they're just down the street and they're nobody. And what I get the sense from going there once a month is that there's a certain happiness in not having to be somebody all the time. That it's not a bad thing. And so the Buddha warned us that one day we would wake up to the fact that we are in a constant state of flux and change, and the person we were yesterday will not be the person that shows up today or happens to be in tomorrow. So get used to it. Don't get too attached to the way things are, because they will change. But what you can do today defines what will happen for you tomorrow which is really cool. So now we have this, these three aspects of wisdom. We have this personal discipline. We're meditating. We're practicing to be skillful in all the things that we do. And then we come to the two path factors and the Eightfold Path that deal with wisdom. Right view, right intention. The first right view is to understand the Four Noble Truths deeply in a personal way through your practice, not just through reading.
to understand karma and how karma is the, the ruling factor in a moral and ethical way. In Buddhism, we, we don't have a divine lawgiver who defines for us what is right and what is wrong. Rather, we have karma. We have cause and consequence. And if I were to go to my knees and beg karma to forgive me, karma has no ears. Karma has no eyes. There's a certain accountability that happens when you understand karma as being a defining force in your life. And if you want a better life, it's up to you. Not for everybody. Buddhism made a radical change in the first century and became a religion rather than a therapy. And after the first century, now we have bodhisattvas, which are Buddhist saints, which will help us in times of need and crisis. They will listen, they will care, they will suggest, but there's never anything in Buddhism that will do it for us. We always end up having to do it ourselves. Then we come to right intention, which is really important. The Buddha said our intention leads our speech and action into the world, and if we have the right intention, we will have the right speech and the right action. So we want an intention of compassion, of kindness, of generosity that will lead our speech and action into the world and change our life and change the lives of others as well. It's a lifelong project, this Buddhism. It's a religion for some. It's a philosophy for others. It's a lifestyle. It's a therapy. It can be useful in your life. It comes from a secular humanistic perspective. It can be useful and it can allow you to suffer less and ultimately not suffer at all. Somebody said one time, what is suffering? You know, I speak about it a lot, all Buddhists do, and the best definition I've heard about suffering came from an eighth grader, Esmeralda, Glendale, California. I was giving a talk on the history of Buddhism in their history class. And after my talk, little Esmeralda raised her hand and stood up and said, Reverend Kusla, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is not optional. How did she know that? How did she know that, that suffering could be optional if we would simply wake up to that fact? And the word Buddha means one thing, one who is awake who sees the true nature of human life and has decided to transcend it in the best of possible ways. So after teaching for 45 years, he died. All humans have to die, even the Buddha. But he left behind a legacy that even today, and especially on the full moon day of May, reminds me that I have a choice, and I'm thankful for that. I brought my harmonica today because sometimes when I talk about this stuff, it gets really depressing. 
and, and people get bummed out. And I don't want to leave them in that state of mind. So this is a little blues in the key of G. And when you think about it, what else would a Buddhist play but the blues? <laughs> so here we go.